Thank you for listening to another inspiring message from The Movement Church. To find out more about The Movement Church, you can check out our website at theocmovement.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The OC Movement. How many of y'all are loving the series so far? Man, I, I, this is one of, one of my favorite. I've been just demolishing this book like crazy. I'm reading it in three, I'm reading it on my Kindle and in Audible at the same time, and I'm writing a book report about it personally because I just want to digest this stuff. So we're on week three of this series called Grown Up Faith, which is helping answer the big questions of life so that we can build a solid foundation of faith. And this is for everyone here that just began a journey with Jesus or has been on a journey with Jesus for 35 years, or if you're not sure if you want to start a journey with Jesus, this is for everyone. Because God's heart is that we would grow up. He says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. We'll read this together. It'll be on the screens. Or you can text the word notes and follow along. Ephesians 4, 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to what? Let's say that again. We are to what? Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's God's heart that you and I would grow up into Christ. That is his design for us on this journey of faith. He's giving us the imagery of life like a ship on the ocean, making sure that our life has a rudder of truth. The rudder that steers the direction of the ship has to be based in biblical truth so that we can navigate through the winds of opinions and false truth and media influence and heresies and teachings, listen, that dismiss or deny the very living and loving God that we have. If you and I don't have a rudder of truth, the winds of our culture will influence you. You and I are being influenced, whether or not you want to admit it or not. We're either being influenced by the truth of God's word or by something else. So you want the rudder of the truth of God's word so that you can grow up into the goodness and the greatness of God. And he created you for this. So listen, he doesn't just say, I want you to grow up because he doesn't think you're good enough. He says, no, I have a bigger and a better life for you. But in order to get there, you got to grow up. If you've ever had kids, there comes a moment with your child where you have to potty train them. Thank you for doing that, parents. Why? Because they can't just wear a diaper in junior high. That's murder. They have to grow up. But that doesn't mean you hate them because you want to make them go potty. Are you tracking with me on the potty? I had to finish my sentence. And God wants us to grow up. And so from this series, as we're unpacking this, I hope you're reading along. If you haven't bought the book, if you can't afford it, I'll buy it for you. It's that important. You can go out to our, our VIP tent and they'll help you with the link. And you say, man, I can't afford it. We'll buy it right now. It's that big because I, I'm telling you, I don't care how, look at me. I don't care how long you've been work, walking with the Lord. You, you need to reestablish your foundation sometimes. There's three big picture objectives that they are kind of cross-threaded through every series, every sermon, and every connect group meeting that we have. And the three big picture objectives are these. Number one is that your mind is rooted in biblical truth. 
your mind, the way that you think is rooted in biblical truth and not in the doctrine of the culture that we live in, that it becomes a rudder of truth for you. Number two is that your heart is engaged in spiritual intimacy. And that word is crucial. Some of you feel like that might seem like a weird term to use when it comes to faith, but Jesus desires intimacy with you. In other words, the closeness of a relationship where you know who he is and his nature for you, his heart towards you. And, and then that leads to the third objective is that my will is following in holy obedience. So if my mind is, is literally wrapped around biblical truth and I'm engaged in a relationship that's intimate with Jesus, then the result should be that my will is following in holy obedience. In other words, I'm led by the Holy Spirit and when he speaks, I'm obedient. This is the big picture objective here. And I'm telling you, this is something we have to wrestle with on a regular basis. You don't just hear a sermon and then you land on it and you're golden. It's a journey. The goodness is, the good news is that the Bible says that God is patient with us. He just wants us to engage in the journey. So can I pray for us today? 21 minutes and 26 seconds left in my sermon and so much to cover. So listen well, laugh hard. Those of you in the family room, pay attention really, really closely. Let me pray. Here's what I'm going to pray. Y'all keep bowing your heads and I keep talking. You lift your heads back up again. I'm going to pray that God leans in. And I'm going to pray that you lean into. Can we do that? Let's pray. God, I just thank you that you're here, that you're up to something big. Man, God, we need you. The truth is we're nothing without you. So grateful for the grace and the mercy that you give to us every day that we don't deserve. I just pray, God, today that for those that are listening to the words that I'm speaking, whether they're in this room driving in their commute to work, listening to a podcast, sitting in the family room, holding a sleeping baby. God, I just pray that every single one of us would lean into what it is that you want to say and nothing more. We don't want anything else but you. So we just thank you that you're here. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Brooks. You did so good. Can we give Brooks a hand clap? Well, I don't know if you have hobbies, uh, but I, I have a couple of hobbies, uh, one of which has kind of become this growing hobby, and that is that I absolutely love to play golf. Do we have any golf fans in here? It has literally become almost just shy of an obsession for me. It's like the church, great food golf, and then my family. And so it's not really unhealthy. No, I just, I love golf so much. I think about it, and I'm on this mission to drop my score and and, and to kind of knock a stroke off every time I play a game. And and little by little, I've been whittling away at it. I mean, actually, I actually have been just, just ever so slightly progressing from absolutely horrendously awful to just a shade under that, little by little. But what I don't have is I don't have a pro card. I I haven't made it on the PGA. Like my friend Nate Nelson, who is here, and he actually has a pro card. He is at one point in time, maybe not recently, but at one point in time, had the goods to be considered a professional golfer because he measured up. His golf game was so good that he was considered among the ranked of the professionals, but I don't have the same gift mix. Can I get an amen? And I don't, I don't quite 
measure up and I try hard. I mean, I go to the range and I play as often as I can and, and I would love to go pro. In fact, if some, if some of you know what I'm talking about, I would love to one day don the green jacket. Man, that would just be an amazing thing. But it doesn't quite matter how hard I try or how many rounds of golf that I play or even if I feel I deserve to be a part of the PGA Tour, I just don't quite measure up. And I could ask the question, why can't the PGA just accept me as a professional? I mean, I look good on the golf course. That's for dang. If you can't play, you got to look good. On the, I mean, I look good on the golf course. And people are like, dude, your swing is awesome, but your shot is horrible. And I'm like, yeah, why can't you just accept me into the PGA as a professional? Listen, I'm a really good guy to play with. I'm going to keep you entertained. And why can't you just let me on the tour? I feel like I'm a great golfer. I feel like you should just kind of let me in. And our culture is asking this same question when it comes to God. Why can't God just accept me as I am? And in this series on Sundays and through connect groups during the week, and I hope for those of you that are reading along with us, we've been talking through some of the life's big questions. In fact, I want to just put them up on the screens to catch you up today uh, we've been reading through these that we're asking 10,000 questions, but they can be boiled down into 10. Your neighbors and your coworkers, your sons or daughters, your moms or dads, you yourself have at one point asked this question, even if it might be phrased or contextually just a little bit different. But these are the questions. Number one, is life an accident or am I here on purpose? Why do bad things happen to good people? Can I really trust God? And why can't I make my own rules? Question number five, which is where we're going to park today. Why can't God just accept me as I am? Question six, isn't one way to God a little narrow-minded? What does it mean to actually be forgiven? And here's another question I get all the time. Why don't Christians look different from everyone else? Well, do I really need to go to church? And are heaven and hell really real. We're going to park today on question five. Why can't God just accept me as I am? And isn't that our culture's new definition of love? If you love me, accept me as I am. If you really say that you love me, then you should accept me just as I am. And we're going to dive into this question looking at God's big picture. Here's the great thing about God is he answers each one of these questions in order in the Bible. Now, I want to reiterate this too. This is kind of the, the, the foundation of this series that, that the Bible is one story. It's how many stories? One story in two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's a mirroring image. There are five major events in the Old Testament and five major events in the New Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and the New Testament builds from him. Here are the five major points. It looks like a mirroring image or a pyramid, if you will. The first major event is God and righteous people in paradise. He created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, then sin and Satan enter the world, then the world is judged and destroyed. You've read the story, you've probably heard of the story of Noah and the flood. Then there's a one world government. In the Old Testament, it was the Tower of Babel. 
And God recognized that the people were up to no good. And they started making trouble in the neighborhood. And so God was like, I'm over. This is it. And then in Genesis 12, there, the next major event is the old covenant is established with God, but from God to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you will be my people. I will give you a promised land. And from you will come the Messiah. Last week, Katie preached on this and she stinking crushed it. If you didn't listen, get the podcast. You don't want to miss it. Then it hits an apex right in the middle. And that is Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard of him. Christmas is kind of about him. And so he is the apex, the center of the story. Then God gives us a new covenant. Now listen, this is right where we are right now. If you're at a map in the mall and it says you are here, that's where we are. The next major events are a foreshadowing, a prophecy of things that have not come but will be. The next major event is another one world government. Now, at the time of the writing of the scripture, this would have seemed impossible. But think about how huge our world is, and yet we are so connected. Interconnected through the interwebs. Then the world will be judged and destroyed, not by flood. The Bible says, Peter actually said, by fire. Satan and sin will leave, and God and righteous people in paradise. The five major events... And these events actually answer the questions that we're asking. So today we're talking about question number five. Why can't God just accept me as I am? Which is why I have this illustration for you today. In the beginning, we read this in the first sermon of this series, was God. And God created us. He created who? He created who? He created man and woman, and he poured his life into us, and it was pure, and it was good, and life was good, and we walked around in the Garden of Eden butt naked. Isn't that awesome? I would have loved those days to still be here today, but you guys probably would not. And he made us pure and righteous and holy, and everything was good. This is God's original intent for us. God created us holy. In fact, the Bible says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. That is mind-blowing. But then Satan and sin entered the world. We have poison. For those of you that cannot see this, this is poison. Rat poisoning that will definitely kill you, or it's just dirt that looks like poison. And here's the problem. We chose sin. God said, you can eat of all the fruit, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And we chose sin and poison, and we contaminated ourselves, and we clouded our judgment. Literally, we chose a life that was unholy holy that was contaminated and we clouded our judgment and now we look like this. This is what we look like before a holy God. And the problem is we cost ourselves the Garden of Eden. The Bible says, y'all track with me today. The Bible says that we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise. Are you tracking? And the Bible says that God set an angel with a sword of flame between us and the Garden of Eden, paradise, because we were unholy. So the angel now guards that which is holy, and we who are now unholy cannot get back to what is holy. This is a, there will be no mosquitoes in this room by the time the day is over. We have actually, the, the truth is this, this is who we have become. This is now our nature. It is a sin nature. We have contaminated our soul with sin, and the consequences of sin is what? Death. Say that again. The consequences of sin is what? And then here's the problem. Moms and dads, it's a little more complicated than this, but we make little ones. It's not really how it works for those of you that are younger in here. 
and we simply transfer our nature to our little ones. If you meet my daughters, they both have blue eyes like their dad. They both have freckles, like not quite like their mom, but similar to their mom. And, and because why? We transfer our physical DNA, listen, but we also transfer our spiritual DNA. And so people might say, well, what I, I try to do what's good. I, I, I try to go to church, and so then I'll just, I, I try to love God to a certain extent. I try to be at church and do what is good. I try to be a good person, so we add a little more pure water to this, but once it's contaminated, by adding a little bit of God, it doesn't change the fact that it's contaminated and cloudy. Do you want to sip of this? No. It doesn't change the fact that it's clouded and contaminated. So how do I get from unholy back to holy? How do I go from this new state that we're in back to the holiness of God. Well, the Bible says that God's holiness is a consuming fire. And if we were to try to get back to the holiness of God, it would be like this. We would be consumed by it. Y'all are thinking that's pretty cool, aren't you? <laughs> should I do that again? I think I should. I've been doing this all week. It's been awesome. I made my kids do this this morning. If we were to try to get from unholy to holy, the Bible says that he is a consuming fire and we would be consumed by who he is. Listen to me. This is, ser- this is serious stuff. The holiness of God is serious stuff. The consequences of sin is what? Death. The consequences of sin is death. Death is the price that has to be paid to go from unholy to holy. I'm going to put this flame out so that I can breathe up here. De- Listen, we can't, just, we can't just ask God. We would love for God to go... And now Jamie is holy. And his wife's like, it would take a lot more than that, my friends. God just can't. He, the righteousness of God would literally have to transform us. But it can't be done because the payment of the contamination of sin is what? We don't get to decide what the payment for sin is. And people would say, why can't we just all get to heaven? Why can't we all, why can't God accept all of us into heaven? Well, listen, if we went to heaven like this, we would contaminate heaven as well, and then all it would be is what we already have. So how do we get from unholy to holy? From unholy to holy. Why can't God just accept me as I am? Well, listen, look at me in the eyes. There is a standard. In fact, it's in the scripture, and the Bible says that he is the standard. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. My friends, this is in the New Testament for my Bible scholars in the room. And this New Testament scripture is quoting an Old Testament scripture found in Deuteronomy. For those of you that don't care about that, that was a freebie. It says this, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Verse 16, for it is written, be holy because what? I am holy. And listen, you were created for this. God created us in the beginning as a holy people. But we took what God called poisonous and we called it harmless. We took what God said is venomous and we said it's not really that big of a deal. But I promise you, you want the holiness of God. It's what you were created. You don't want the dirt. You already have it. This is the life that we were born into. You're stuck with it. And we have a problem. I put this in your notes. 
we don't measure up. Just like I don't have a pro card to be a part of the PGA Tour. Listen, we get this and we see it everywhere else in life. Why is it not obvious when it relates to God and his holiness? We see this everywhere else. Well, I'm just being myself. This is just my nature. I'm just being me. Accept me for being me. And you know what? That's true. This is your nature, but it's your sinful nature. It's not who you were created to be. Or here's what else we'll do. We'll begin to compare ourselves. Well, in comparison to my friend, I don't look quite as dirty and as contaminated as he is. Well, yeah, of course not, because we're using contaminated, clouded sin and the poisonous life of sin as the standard. But this isn't the standard. The holiness of God is the standard. And compared to the holiness of God, it doesn't matter if you are a murderous, adulterous, lying heathen, or you just judge people. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter if you were a part of constructing the Holocaust, or you just gossip about your coworker to your other coworkers. You're contaminated. Isn't that encouragement? Encouragement. My fallen nature, listen, needs to be covered, cleansed, forgiven, and made righteous again. So how does this get solved? How do we go from unholy to holy? I'm so glad you asked. In the scripture, it gives us two solutions, a temporary and a permanent. Say a temporary Temporary. and a permanent. permanent. Two solutions. Remember, the Old Testament and the New Testament are mirror images and they point to the person of Jesus. The old covenant is based on what the scripture calls the tabernacle. This is how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everyone say the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's temporary solution for humanity. And he shows us this or depicts this in Exodus chapter 25. Look at this. It says, Exodus 25 verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. So a holy God says, hey, let them build me a house because I, even though they're unholy, I am desperate to be with them. That's the good news about God. He's constantly doing the work of redemption for you and for me. But he goes on in verse 9 and he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. You see, God wants a relationship with us and he's always working to restore us to an uncontaminated place, but, everyone say but. It has to be exactly as he describes it. You see, you and I, we always want God on our terms. We want a Yogurtland version of God. You ever been to Yogurtland? Who has not been to Yogurtland? Raise your hand. Three of you? Okay. You go to Yogurtland. It's frozen yogurt. I don't really eat yogurt, but my kids do. And they have 37 different flavors you can choose from. And then after the flavors of ice cream slash yogurt, I don't know the difference, They have like 8,000 treats and toppings from Fruity Pebbles to Oreo cookies to caramel to boba to the greatest iced animal crackers. Anybody else love iced animal crackers? Jesus lives in those things. And that's how we want God. Flavors that I choose, toppings that I love, look at me. And if I don't like it, I'll skip it. And that's not how God works. He said it has to be exactly as I tell you. We don't like this part of the gospel. It's uncomfortable. He takes the next 15 chapters of this book to describe exact details of what the tabernacle, his house, should look like down to the detail of the color of thread at the hem of a curtain. 
It's hugely important. It's describing, listen, the path from unholy to holy, the path back to Jesus, and it matters. The question, why can't God just accept me as I am, is a huge question, and so many of us don't know the answer, but the tabernacle lays out the path back to righteousness. And it requires a sacrifice, because the penalty of sin is death. The entire Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. And literally, Jesus walks the same path of the tabernacle and then rewrites a new covenant with us in it called the New Testament. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about that next week. But in his book, Kevin Myers, he writes about the tabernacle. And I I just want to encourage you to be reading along with us. But he said this, listen. He said, the tabernacle was the tangible and visible application of the intangible and invisible spiritual truth that sin poisons us and separates us from God. It helped the Israelites to see physically how they were separated spiritually. The tabernacle is a movement from unholy to holy. The tabernacle lays out the path of God's restoration. And listen, that's his heart for you and for me. So we're going to take a quick look over the remaining minutes together. I'm going to unpack the tabernacle for you. If you've never experienced this before, congratulations. And if you don't care, congratulations. Let's take a quick look at the tabernacle of God. Now listen, I want to just tell you real quickly, this may be weird to some of us in this room, especially if you're newer to faith. But for people in this time alive on this day and age or that day and age, all around the world, this religious ceremony was very normal. So I've actually got some clips that are going to help illustrate this. The tabernacle had an exterior curtain all the way around it that was uh, somewhere between a quarter to a half the size of a football field. And it was surrounded by a curtain. And before you could go into the curtain, there was a gate. And at the gate, the head of the household would show up with a spotless, perfect lamb. And it had to be the firstborn lamb. And it had to have no defect. Because he was going to take this lamb and it would become a sacrifice for his family. So he would get to the gate and a priest would meet him there and inspect the perfection of this lamb to whether or not he could actually come in. So once that lamb was inspected, the head of the household would then go through the gate and now he would be inside what is called the inner courts of the tabernacle. And then ahead of him, what he would see is the brazen altar. This is the next component that he would see there. And on this altar is where the lamb would be sacrificed. It would would be where the lamb would be slaughtered. On the sides of this brazen altar were tables where the head of household would actually slaughter the lamb. Now listen to me for a moment. This would be a sobering experience for him. Because this would happen one day of the year, every year. And every head of every household would show up to the tabernacle. So the ground that he would be walking on would be covered with blood from lambs. So the weight of what was taking place would be insurmountable. And the head of the household would slaughter the lamb, and the priest would take it, and he would put it on the brazen altar as a sacrifice because the penalty of sin is what? Now this actually represents four different things that would take place at the brazen altar. Number one is this was temporary. In other words... I have sin, the lamb covers my sin debt, but I'm going to sin again and again and again. So I've got to do this same ceremony again and again and again. It was also substitutionary. 
In other words, the lamb is taking the place of my sin and my family's sin and our shame as a substitute. Number three, it was atoning, which means it was taking or to make amends for or to compensate. And finally, it was a sacrifice. The lamb has to die because the payment of sin is death and it must be paid. The weight of this would have been overwhelming. Imagine if your family wasn't able to make the trip to the temple that year. And you're a people who are separated from God and you want to get back to holy. But you had to go through a process. You had to work hard to get there. And as you made that sacrifice, you would literally be praying that God would accept the sacrifice. And he would see the sincerity of your heart. The, 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 the process of this would have been overwhelming. And then that was it. That was as close as he could get to God. This was the, the inner courts. It wasn't even the tabernacle. He could see behind the brazen altar the tabernacle, but couldn't go close because he wasn't a priest. And then he would leave the inner courts, and that was it for him. One day a year. And then the priest would then go on from there, and he would go up to the laver, which is the next level in the tabernacle, and he would cleanse his hands because he had just sacrificed a lamb. And he would wash his hands, and, and this was a representation that he had been forgiven, and now he's being sanctified. That The first step is to know what God is doing, but then there's steps afterwards to, to get the junk on the inside out. So I've been forgiven, but now I'm being sanctified. And then before him would be the tabernacle, and it would be overwhelming. Because the tabernacle was completely enclosed by another veil, another curtain and covered, and it represented the presence of the almighty God. It was about 15 feet wide and 45 feet long, and the priest would go past a curtain, and he would step into what was called the holy place. And there would be other elements, and then he would worship God through service in the holy place. There would be a table of showbread, and, and on this table would be two stacks of manna, or bread, uh, two stacks of six, 12 total, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was a reminder that they've always had a provider. And if you know some of the context, then you can remember that they're in the desert, wandering for years in the moment that this was built, and God was just saying, hey, I've never left you, and I'll never forsake you you, I will always provide for you. And then they would turn and they would see the lampstand and there would be a lampstand known as a menorah with seven candlestick options. And this light was the only light in the holy place. And the candle was lit all year round. When they would travel and pack it up, they would take the same flame and put it in an earthen vessel so that it would never go out because it was reminding them that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then he would turn and there would be an altar of incense where specific incense would be burning, a specific concoction of specific ingredients that would create an aroma that's so pleasing and it represents the prayers being lifted up to God and then before them on the other side of this altar of incense was a veil. It was a curtain that was six inches thick because behind this veil was the Holy of Holies. And the Bible says that this place represented the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that once they would establish the tabernacle or what is known as the tent of meeting, the Bible says that a pillar of cloud would descend on it as the presence of God would show up. This would be an overwhelming sense. 
And this is as far as any priest could go, except for one priest, and he was called the high priest. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, look at me, and only one time of year. And he would wear a robe ornate with 12 stones, representing the 12 stones of Israel. And along the hem of his garment would be bells that would ring, that would do two things. One, representing the worship and praise of our God. But he would also have a rope tied to his ankle because he and only he was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year and only if he was righteous before God. He would go in there as a representation for the entire nation, and they tied a rope to his ankle because if he wasn't righteous before God, God would kill him because the holiness of God is a consuming fire. And they would pull that joker out by the rope. Nobody's signing up for that job because the priests couldn't go in. He's a holy God. We are contaminated people. But he wants to make us holy again. And in that room, the Holy of Holies would be the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if you know this, but it was discovered in the mid-30s by an archaeologist by the name of Indiana Jones. And, <laughs> and in the Ark of the Covenant would be manna, the bread that God would provide for the Israelites. And the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's staff, which would have a budding flower on it, even though it was disconnected from the vine. And on top, of the ark would be two cherubim or angels facing each other, wings extended like you can see on the image behind me. And it was referred to, listen, as the mercy seat. This is what I love about our God. It was a place where the presence of God would show up and he called it the mercy seat because to him, he's always wanting to give us a mercy that we don't deserve because he wants to take us from unholy to holy. And the presence of God would show up and he was representing the mercy on us through a sacrifice. This is a story of the redemption of an unholy people being restored to a holy God. But this was temporary, and it was mobile, and it was repeated annually, but it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would accomplish permanently. Yeah. That's God's purpose, to give us a bigger life. Before Jesus, only the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies because holiness is a serious business because we're contaminated with sin and a price must be paid. And next week, we're going to talk about the price that only Jesus could have paid. Don't miss it. I'm going to kind of conclude here which is different than we normally do. But I've just been overwhelmed with the idea. And really, I want to pose the question to you, because here's the thing. Knowing the standard of holiness and living it are two different things. So where have you become casual with holy? Where have you become casual with holy? You know, I, I, I wasn't sure I was going to share this story, but this week I was watching a show with my daughter and I got sucked in and watched like three episodes. I won't tell you the name of the show, but it's about a young girl who is trying to date 24 guys to figure out which one she's going to marry. I know you have no clue which show I'm talking about. And I got sucked in and watched like three episodes. I was like, don't, I got to go to the restroom, push pause. <laughs> Brooks, I heard you laugh. That's not acceptable. And we were watching a recap, I guess that's what they call it. And it's like the, the couple come back out, comes back out and she gets to talk to the guys that she rejected and denied. And, 
And then for the, the 24 guys, one of the highlights of the conversation was which ones she had had sex with. Now remember, I'm engulfed in this show. And in this moment, she's talking about this guy. Well, I know everybody thinks we had sex twice, but now that the word's out, we actually had sex four times. And the whole room erupts. The host stands up, and he salutes the man. And I'm entertained by this show, and I can't stop watching. And it dawns on me, we live in a world that's become okay with the poison and contamination. And I've become casual with holy. Now look at me. I don't care if you watch the show. This is not about the show. This is not about the young lady or the young men. This is about being casual with holy. And you might say, well, well, I'm not sleeping around with somebody else. Okay, are you gossiping? Do you have a judgmental attitude? Are you lying? Are you cheating on your taxes? Are you clocking in when you say you're clocking in? It doesn't matter if you're having sex with 35 different people today or you're judging somebody based upon their Instagram post. It's a contamination. So my hope is not to identify and sit here and linger or put a magnifying glass or a spotlight on your past, but really to talk about what God wants to see in your future. I was convicted not because of the show. I don't have a problem watching the show. We live in a fallen world. I was convicted because I had become casual with holy. And I wasn't created to be casual with it. I was created to be in a loving, living relationship with a holy God. And you are too. No hands raised, but just self-contemplation. I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you have become casual with holy? I want to pray for us for a moment before we close our service and we're a few minutes late today. But I believe God wants to do something. Here's what I believe. I believe the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is at work right now. The difference between conviction and condemnation is this. Condemnation says this is who you were, who you are, and who you will always be. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit says, hey, this is in you, but it's not what I have for you. And my hope is that some of us today would recognize the need to allow God to do a work of taking us from unholy to holy. Can I pray for us today? God, I just thank you. Even though today is a story and a sermon about what once was, we know the rest of the story that Jesus came and he paid the permanent price for the atonement of the contamination of our sin. He paved the way from unholy to holy but some of us in this room have become too casual with it. And I pray, God, that you would just illuminate the things that we've become casual with that we need to change. Not for the sake of what people think or what someone else says, but God, for the sake of what your heart wants for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Hey, look up at me. We're almost done. I just want to challenge some of you in this room who may not have begun a journey with Jesus yet. There's a starting point. 
and it's not church membership, and, and this is why we exist. Remember our mission? To inspire the one who's inspired from God, to find life in Christ and life in the church is why we exist. And the greatest decision you can ever make is just to simply say yes to Jesus. And some of you in this room have not made that decision, and today is your day. Don't waste any more time. God has a greater and a bigger life for you. Look at me in the eyes. Some of you made this decision, and you've been playing around with your faith. You've been treating holiness too casual, and today's the day to come back to him. I want to pray a prayer, and I want to challenge those of you who have never prayed the prayer or who need to pray it again to join me. And I'm going to ask that we pray this out loud today. Every single person in this room, I just want to make that declaration of faith. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you've never prayed this prayer or you need to pray it again, then I want you to make this your own in your own heart. But I want us all to say the words of this prayer aloud. Don't make me ask you to repeat it. Just do it from the first. Everyone here say, Dear God, I know that you're real. I know that you love me, that you've given me purpose, that you created me holy, but I've contaminated my life. Would you forgive me? And make these words your own. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. If you prayed that prayer with us today, we are so excited to be a part of this journey with you. Would you email us at info at theocmovement.com? And if you're not in the area, we would love to help you find another life-giving church near you. Send us an email at info at theocmovement.com and we'll get back to you shortly. Thank you again for listening to another inspiring message from The Movement Church.